Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, and we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understanding and also our, our hands, Lord, to live for you and to walk in your ways, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I had thought I would, uh, instead of splitting up this passage, because it really is just sort of all one story that I thought we'd just read through the whole thing. It's a little longer than we usually do, but that's okay, because it's pretty good. Um, what, what really stood out to me, I think, about this passage uh, is not that the disciples faced conflict or faced resistance. I think sort of a resistance to the gospel is, is often sort of part and parcel of the Christian life. But what really stands out uh, as as we hear this this passage, is the disciples have a real a real courage, uh, but they also just have a real joy. There is a real joy about them when they face difficulty. They almost have a sort of winsomeness about it. Uh, there's a gladness that's just unaffected by uh, even the the jealous officials coming against them. Right? They just kind of continue on in their life and in ministry, uh, even as the world around them is sort of thrashing against uh, the idea of Jesus and the idea of the resurrection and what that means on the ground for them. And that joy is really shared, not just by the apostles, but it seems like it's shared by the crowds as well. And the passage begins with something we don't always see. Sometimes we're used to thinking of uh, the, the response or the attitude towards Christians as though thinking of them as sort of judgmental or hypocritical or backwards or something. But here in this passage, uh, the people are holding the disciples in really high esteem. Verse 13 says, none of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And later on, of course, the officials are nervous about the public opinion of the people in how they try to handle the apostles. When when we think about that, I, you know, you want to ask, well, what accounts for the high esteem that the people have for the apostles? Some of these are unbelievers. They're not necessarily Christians, but they're holding uh, the Christians and those that are preaching in high esteem. And I think it's evident when you think back on the descriptions of the early church that we've had so far, there's been a lot of emphasis on their loving fellowship together. Uh, there's been a, an emphasis on them extending compassion and grace to each other, uh, of genuine care for each other. We saw that when they were talking about the generosity and the, the giving of the funds to help those who are in need. You get the sense that these are just really approachable, life-giving people. And I was thinking about in my own life, uh, there's a few really uh, particular people who are especially sort of fit that description for me. They always tend to kind of make me laugh. They sort of put me at ease. Um, it's a joy to be around them. They're just sort of life-giving people. And I like that idea as a, as a good descriptor of what being a healthy Christian is about. Do you bring life to people in how you go about living? These are the sort of people that you can also bring your problems to. And, of course, that's exactly where the passage goes, right? Not only are these people preaching and there is life-giving joy of being around them, but people start to bring their sick, uh, start to bring those that are unwell, afflicted with unclean spirits, and uh, we see signs and wonders beginning as well. And that's true of life. You know, when you find someone 
who actually cares about you, you feel like you can actually bring your kind of hardest problems to, right? And that's what starts going on here. You start, they start to feel willing to share with them uh, the real needs in their lives, actually bringing those needs right to them, right? And so as the preaching and the teaching of Jesus is going out in love, the people respond by bringing these real needs uh, to the apostles and signs and wonders start to happen, which sounds, of course, very much like the descriptions of Jesus, right? As he is preaching and loving people and eating with them, we find people responding by bringing uh, the sick and the broken and Jesus healing them. And so uh, in a very real way, the mission of Jesus is now being carried forward by the apostles, right, in and through them. And we get a glimpse here, too. Look at verse 16. It's kind of a passing reference, but it's a glimpse of what's going what's gonna to happen. Verse 16 says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. And it brings us back to that whole idea of, of kind of the word. It starts out, the mission of the church starts out in Jerusalem, but then slowly expands outward, right? to the areas around, and now we're starting to see that first glimpse of now the towns around Jerusalem are starting to bring people, and uh, the word is getting out. We also, of course, believe in, in signs and wonders today, right? This is the inbreaking of the, the future reality of God's restoration, which will come in its fullness, but there are moments where that comes into being in the present in our lives here today. It's the Spirit bringing His, his transforming and life-giving healing in our lives. But notice also, uh, God does not tend to do the same thing twice or the same thing all the time. Here we get a reference to Peter's shadow healing people, uh, but in other places there's no mention at all of Peter's shadow, right? We read of, of Jesus healing miracles all through the Gospels, of course, and yet we also read a couple weeks ago of the man uh, who was healed, uh, who was standing at the, sitting at the temple gate, the lame man, uh, who's there at the temple gate, and Peter and John uh, are the ones who sort of bring God's healing to them. And we read that he was sitting there for a long time, right? Almost the idea could have been that Jesus himself would have passed this man during his life. So why wasn't he healed then, right? <laughs> Why not heal him right then? Um, and yet he's healed later when Peter and John show up. The, the truth is we just don't always know or understand God's timing when it comes to these things. Um, this past week, I uh, had a funeral for, for friends of ours who uh, encountered just the tragic loss of a child. And you could ask, well, if God worked with Peter's shadow in Jerusalem, why isn't he working uh, here in the shadows in our own lives, in my own town, right? But the reality is here in Acts, we find both the miracles and the tragedies. And it's just, it's a, it's a good reminder for us that we, we live in between these times. In the, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. His kingdom has come, and yet his kingdom will come in its fullness when he returns. And we live in between those two. And sometimes we see the fullness of the kingdom come in someone being miraculously healed, and sometimes uh, we, we realize we're living in the not quite yet of the fullness of the kingdom. I really appreciated what uh, Dean Pinter speaks of in, in his commentary on Acts. He put it this way. He says, frankly, I have no idea 
why God may immediately heal a crippled boy in one place and allow a suffering child to die after years of treatment in another. But God does not do the same thing for everybody. For example, in chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are miraculously delivered from prison. A few chapters later, James is executed. In chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death in Jerusalem. In chapter 14, Paul is stoned in Lystra, yet recovers. And so we grapple with living in the mystery of that in-between, between the future age with its resurrection life and power and healing and the present age with its suffering and grief. And even here in Acts, we see times where God works in the brokenness to bring the already of the future kingdom into people's lives. And at other times, we read how tragedies do occur and people do get sick and people do pass away. But we look forward to that day when God's ultimate restoration will come, when that future will break in. Um, but we live in that in-between space where we still lose our loved ones. Um, but we can rest knowing that God will do more than we can possibly imagine in his grace and in his goodness. And though things may not always go as we would hope, he is still holding us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is still present with us in it and will bring things, work things out for his glory and for his restoration in the end. And that's evident when we get to this next passage, when the trouble does come and the apostles are arrested and in jail, when they are in the darkest moment, probably so far in the story, it's really clear that God is still with them. God is right there in the middle of it, and God rescues them from the prison, but then still lets them get beaten. Did you catch that? <laughs> he get, they get released from prison, but they still get, they still get you know, harassed and, and attacked, right? But God is still with them in the brokenness of it. And it's little wonder that as sort of the power and the love of the disciples and their growing popularity is increasing and there's greater influence, what does it spark in their enemies? It sparks jealousy, right? That's what we read in verse 17. They're filled with jealousy. I, jealousy of what? Of, of their popularity, maybe? Jealous of the fact that there's real power that they don't have, and maybe they're recognizing it? Don't know exactly that there's a jealousy there. And as the preaching continues and the healing continues, the opposition happens. And it also demonstrates for us that the preaching of the resurrection elicits a variety of responses. For some, as people are being healed, it it's brings life and restoration and goodness and rejoicing and celebration. But for others, it challenges their worldview, especially the Sadducees, right? We talked about how they don't believe in the resurrection. So when you're preaching about the resurrection and people are being healed, that would really be confronting to them, right? What do they do with that? They're filled with jealousy. There's a, a tra an attractive vitality to the church that they just can't mimic, right? And so uh, just as there's great joy and, and life among the fellowship, they seek, to, they seek to come and squelch the movement, and their attempts to do so are pretty comedic, actually, right? What plays out is almost, it's kind of hilarious. They have the apostles arrested. They're put in prison. 
this, uh, and it's stated so matter of factly in Acts. Like at night, an angel comes and opens the door, and it's like you, you know, off you go. Tells them to go back to the temple and stand up and speak to the people all the words of this life. Verse twenty. In verse twenty. Anyone, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They just, okay, we just carry on. <laughs> right off we go. And the high priest, thinking he's got the upper hand, he, he calls together a big to-do, right, of the council and the senate of the people of Israel. And then he sends people off to the prison to go collect, you know, he's caught the guys. Go collect them. And the officers come. And they're like, we went to the prison, the guards did their job, but no one's there. We just, they're gone, right? We don't even know what to do. This would be really embarrassing probably for that, the main high priest guy. He's had, a, he's called a big meeting together. And now the, you know, the people they're going to kind of come at are, are gone. And then someone else shows up and says, I just saw them standing over in the temple preaching again, right? And notice the the emphasis from the angel and from the person in verse 25, the disciples are they're standing and teaching the people. It's just a neat contrast because the enemies, their enemies would have sought to kind of have them stand and witness on trial. But here the angel has called them to go and stand in the temple. And indeed they are standing, giving witness, but not in sort of a, a judgment case, but now just out in the open standing and giving witness. Yes of their life-giving testimony of Jesus. And so the captain and the elites are so scared, right, of starting a riot because the people love the disciples that they go and bring them in gently without force, it says, because they're afraid of being stoned by the people, verse 26. And one writer, uh, Gaventa, puts it this way, saying, instead of the apostles being afraid of the powerful, now the powerful are afraid of the apostles. And notice that the, the priests and the officers never even stop to ponder God's will. It just doesn't even cross their minds. The fact that, that somehow there's been a miraculous escape. You, you would think they would stop and be like, oh, maybe something's going on here and we should reevaluate our thoughts on this. But they just stubbornly kind of go back at using the only force at their disposal, though that that force is now shown to be quite quaint. And it's a good reflection, folks, on, on the Christian response to oppression and to opposition. Notice, again, the apostles don't just, they're not released from prison and then they just start fighting back, right? They don't pull a Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane and start trying to hack people with a sword, right? They know that's not the way to do it. Instead, what do they do? They're released and they go back to just faithfully proclaiming the resurrection, faithfully proclaiming all the words of this life, capital L, right? They're going back to preaching Jesus, healing the sick, being a loving community. And when the authorities show up to try and stop them, um, they simply go on with it and, and remain faithful to God. And so rather than running away when they're freed, or rather than planning retaliation against those that would seek to stop them, they simply go back to the main thing, which is living boldly for Jesus. And I think that's really appropriate for us when at times we can feel we want to get angry about, you know, if someone's come against us for something or something's happening in life that we're upset about, it can be easy to either want to flee and kind of drop everything and be like, forget it, I'm done, or to be angry and to really push back on it. Um, and there's time and place for the, for those, I suppose. But 
there's a call here for us as Christians to simply keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Not necessarily to flee because we're scared or to react in, in aggression because we're angry, but to keep our hearts and our eyes focused on who Christ is and keep the main thing the main thing. They don't, uh, they don't like I said in an earlier sermon, they don't go and egg the high priest's house, right? Or, or find all, uh, you know, the, who the, who the Sad, where the Sadducees are living and, and try and attack them. They just don't. They go back to proclaiming the good news. And Peter's reply to the second arrest, again, is full of courage. And it sounds, again, like his response from chapter 4. He just says, we must obey God rather than others, rather than human beings. And it, it sounds a lot like um, those that we read about in Daniel, right? It sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, again, who are law-abiding citizens, but recognize that when the authorities ask them to bow to some other god or some other idol, uh, Yahweh comes first, Jesus comes first, their higher duty is to God. And notice Peter calls in verse 31, calls Jesus as in, in the ESV, it says as leader and savior. In some translations, it's prince and savior uh, or leader or pioneer. You can kind of translate it different ways. And that would have really struck a blow because the high priest in a lot of ways would have been thought of as the leader, right? He's the one that gets to go in on the Day of Atonement once a year and make offer the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, right? And yet here the apostles are declaring that the resurrected Jesus is the true prince. He's the true leader. He's the true pioneer of their faith. He's the one bringing them into a new creation. And it's Jesus who's gone once and for all into that place and offered his own life as sacrifice for our sins. And he's the only one that's broken the power of death and rescued his people. And so again, the apostles are pointing to a new focal point for Israel. You need to look to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel hoped for, all that the high priest system was about, all that the sacrificial system was about, all that the temple itself was about. Jesus has fulfilled, and in him, we have the gift of repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's a reminder for us, I think, folks, that we can sometimes ascribe a lot of value to things in our lives um, that aren't necessarily Jesus. Here, the, the, those that are, are opposing the apostles are operating in a system that they're, they're really familiar with, that this is just how we do life. The thought that there's someone else that they're supposed to give their allegiance to is really difficult for them to think of. And even for us as Christians, there can be times in our lives where we can put some other thing or some other power. It could even be our own jobs. It could be our own status. It could be um, certain relationships in our lives that we can sort of put, uh, almost make as an idol, that we can kind of put that thing as more important in our lives than Jesus. And that's what's happening with uh, the high priest and with the Sadducees. They are putting something else. At, they're choosing something else instead of choosing Jesus. And we all have that choice. I mean, many of us who are Christians, we've made that choice. You know, we would say, well, I have chosen Jesus. And yet every day we make that choice to either put Jesus first or not or to put something else in our lives first or not. I, it's similar to a wedding. You know, at a wedding, you say, I do, 
to your spouse, but you are also saying I do every day of that marriage. You are still choosing that one over someone else. It is an act. It's not just something you did in the past. It is something you are actively living out every day. And that's true of following Jesus. It's not just something we said once to in the past. It is something as Christians that we are called to be living into every day. I choose Jesus every day, not some other thing, but him alone. And that is it's just a reminder. Again, these are the religious ones who are missing Jesus. And they are busy with other things, but neglecting the truth. And uh, what, a, what a helpful reminder for us to sometimes pause and evaluate in our own lives. Yes, I know maybe I'm a follower of Jesus, but Lord, have I really put you first in my life? Or is there something else that I have made uh, my leader and my savior? Or is there something that's trying to take that first place in my heart that I need to put aside? And then the passage sort of ends with uh, this Gamaliel fellow who's a Pharisee but takes Peter's claim seriously. And then he suggests the following, which is pretty good advice. He says, if God's in it, there's no stopping it. And if God's not in it, it'll just die out. So don't, don't get too worked up about it, basically. He suggests a wait-and-see approach, right? And it suggests what the authorities are going to do next in the story of Acts. Will they be open to God at work in the apostles? Will they repent? Will they wait and see and realize God is in it and, and to turn? Or will they go after it and will the hostility to the apostles increase? And we know it will. If you've read ahead, right? If you know the story. The, the hostility will increase, but there will be many, but one in particular who will realize God is in it, right? And that's going to be Paul. In the meantime, the apostles emerge from the whole episode just kind of renewed with joy and courage to keep proclaiming the gospel, right? So when faced with opposition, they have conviction and humility and peace. And I think of Jesus as he faced his own suffering, as he faced those who sought to kill him. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus looked beyond the immediate trouble. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says he said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. And so just as Jesus, in the moment of trouble and opposition in his own life at the cross, Jesus looked beyond it, knowing there was joy beyond that affliction. And I think of our own lives, I think of the apostles here uh, who were looking, you know, they are looking beyond the struggle in their own life and realizing there is hope and joy and restoration even beyond this immediate moment and that's what allows them to just continue on with preaching because they know god's got them and i think in our own lives too that's an important stance to have you know when trouble comes our way and we are suffering and we are dealing with real issues in our lives um it is easy to get really bogged down in them right to get kind of lost in it but just as Jesus looked, you know, beyond to what would be coming after the cross, he could set that before him and endure it with hope and with joy. We can do the same. You know, when we are encountering real trouble in our lives, we can fix our eyes on Jesus 
the author and finisher of our faith and recognize he has got us even when we are in the middle of, of trouble or whatever it might be in our own lives. And so that's my prayer for us, is that we, like the apostles and even like Jesus himself, that when we encounter real struggle or real opposition in our lives, we can find courage and fix our eyes on God, who is the author and the pioneer of our faith. Let's pray together as we come to the table here this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are alive and at work in our lives. Jesus, we thank you that you, you do fill us with a joy and a hope that is often surprising to others. There's a hope that our lives uh, have more in store because of you. And we can, we can live knowing that you are at work in us and through us, that you will see us through. Lord, we thank you this morning of the example of the apostles, of their courage and their their willingness to put you first. Also, Lord, their, their joy at being around others, of sharing the gospel, of healing. Lord, we pray that as we would share the news of what you've done in our lives, we too would be willing uh, to speak your healing in your life to those that are around us. Lord, this morning, whatever we might be facing in our own lives, whether there's those that are sick, whether there's a recent death and we're grieving, whether there's financial struggle or marriage struggle, maybe we're concerned about the state of things in our world or our country. Lord, there's lots of things that could get us bogged down or worried. But Lord, we look to you this morning, just as the example that you have set for us, that you looked beyond the cross and saw what was to come. Jesus, we look to you and recognize that uh, we are our momentary afflictions are just that. They're momentary. But Lord, there is hope and restoration in you and through you. And just as the apostles know that they are held by you in this moment that we read about this morning and they encounter trouble, they're still beat, um, they're able to see that you have a bigger plan in store. And so, Father, even when we experience real trouble and even persecution or even just difficulty in our own lives, Lord, help us to remember that you are telling a bigger story, that you have got us, you will see us through, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And in that place, our cup overflows with blessing and hope, knowing that you have got us even in the midst of difficulty. Lord, as we come to this table today, it's a, a celebration and an acknowledgement, Lord, that in the greatest place of your struggle and suffering, you bought life for us. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would be here uh, in this meal, that you would pour out your spirit upon us and upon these gifts, and that as we would come to the table, we would recognize afresh that you alone are our true author, our true leader. 
Lord, that you are to be first and foremost in our lives. And we want to set aside anything else that would seek to take priority, Lord, in our lives. We want to put you first. In your name, amen.